0: It's time
1: for a Big Blue Kickoff Live.
0: Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you are right, dead. On
1: Giants.com.
0: You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants
2: Podcast Network.
1: Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs and have some fun.
2: Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app, as well as podcast platforms. He's Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow, with you for the next 60 minutes, as we'll break down all that is happening with the New York Giants. And a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, Podcast platforms everywhere and at Giants.com slash podcasts. So we're going to continue to hear from former Giants players as we look ahead to the start of the 2021 season. We focused on the wide receiver core as well as the running back core. Today, we will turn our attention to the offensive line. And a reminder, all shows this week are prerecorded. We are unable to take phone calls, but we advise you to send in your questions using hashtag GiantsChat. On social media, we'll be reviewing those questions as we'll be answering them for the remainder of the week as well as on future shows. But to start things off, as I mentioned, today we're going to focus on the offensive line. And to weigh in on that, we are joined by a very special guest who played for the Giants from 2001 to 2010, helped Big Blue win Super Bowl 42 over the Patriots, now serves as the head football coach at Wachung Hills Regional High School in Warren, New Jersey, none other than former Giants offensive lineman Rich Soybert. Rich, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dettino here on Giants.com. Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Uh, we're doing great. You know, thanks for having me on today. I look
3: forward to uh, talking a little bit of football with
2: you guys. Absolutely. And one of the reasons why we want you on the program is to focus on this year's offensive line. And I want to bring your personal experience, Rich, into perspective here. Because you look at the fact that the Giants drafted three offensive linemen last year. Andrew Thomas, Matt Parrott, Shane Lemieux, all three got playing time. Your first year in the league, you had two appearances. Then your second year in the league, you became an every-down starter. What was the biggest jump for you, Rich, when you went from year one to year two on the offensive line that maybe applies to those three guys in particular, assuming they all could claim starting roles? You know, I
3: think it's um, my first year. I don't think I was ready to play football yet. I didn't, uh, I didn't understand the system. I didn't, uh, I wasn't uh, good enough yet to play in the NFL. But you know that one that one offseason, uh, being around the coaches, being around the players, being in the being in the uh, in the weight room lifting and doing the OTAs and the uh, summer workouts and whatnot, uh, it got me ready. Right, I just felt like I was I was mentally ready to play my second year just by being around the team for that uh, that calendar year prior.
0: You know, Rich, the Giants have some young linemen on this team. In fact, they drafted three rookies last year. And because of the way that they rotated guys during the, the 2020 season, Lemieux got to play more than a month. Uh, Matthew Parrot over at right tackle got, you know, a number of different games where he got in for, I don't know, 12 plays, 15 plays or whatever. Uh, there was some question as to whether or not there was a lot of benefit in that but don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe you don't think, but is it really tremendously beneficial to those guys not just to come back for their second season, but to have received so many snaps as rookies?
3: Uh, yeah, you know, I think and I think every every play you play is a learning experience. And, you know, you have um, you have a, few, a few guys coming back that, that played last year, right? It doesn't matter how many snaps they played, but they played. Uh, they were in the trenches. They know what it's like. Um, they know what they need to work on going into year two. Uh, You know, the one thing, I I didn't play my first year, so I really didn't know what to work on. So if there's one thing that would have helped me from playing my rookie year is I could have honed in on the skills that I needed to become better my second year. And these guys should have that, right? Um, Hopefully, you know, I always said what made us good back in the day was we did everything together. You guys know that. We were, you know, eat breakfast, eat lunch,
2: eat,
3: hang out at night. Um, we all knew each other really well. We we were friends, and that made us better players
2: together. Well, you bring up an interesting point, Rich. For somebody that has not played on the offensive line, why is there a connection to your point, the stuff you do off the field, the chemistry you build off the field, then perhaps something that translates to the field? Why do you think there's an association between those two factors? Because you're
3: playing for the guy next to you, right? So uh, I played my majority of my career next to Sean was to my right, and David was to my left. And the more I knew about those guys and the more I knew the way they thought, and they, the more they knew about me, my, my strengths, my weaknesses, um, we could help each other out, right? Uh, without saying words, you know, I, pretty, I think we all could, you know, say each other's thoughts. And um, the more we did, just the, the closer we became. And the closer we became, the more we wanted to play for each other and, uh, you know, and, and do anything for each other.
0: Well, when you talk about that, though, Rich, part of that is the consistency and the continuity of being able to play in the same spot for a number of years, although David, of course, you know, Deal was was the jack of all trades, and they moved him around a lot like a ping-pong ball. (laughs) But, But the Giants have a situation where Hernandez may be fighting now to be the right guard instead of the left guard where he was playing early in the season until Shane Lemieux wound up moving in after Hernandez had the COVID. How much of an adjustment is that going to be for Hernandez now that Gates could be on his left shoulder, and I'm guessing it could be Parrot or it could be Solder on his right
3: shoulder instead of the other way around when he was on the left side? Uh, you know, he's a professional. I'm sure he will. Um, I'm sure they were like us, right? They're, they're in that meeting room together. They're, they're talking together. They're watching film together. They know each other. Um, they're professionals. They They should be ready to go, right? Uh, every rep they get next to each other is going to make them better. Um, yeah, he might be switching sides. Uh, shoot. You know, I, I remember the year I came back from breaking my leg, and, you know, I was kind of, you know, the tight end, the guard. the knee got hurt, the center, of Sean got hurt, the right guard, left guard. Um, pretty much playing everywhere. Uh, even though I didn't get all the reps, you know, with those guys in practice or in games, you know, you still got the mental reps in the meeting rooms watch and watching film and talking it out prior to being out there in that field. So, um, you know, if there's one advice I can give to these guys, you know, I would, I would really stretch the more they can do together, the better they're going to be as a group. You know, it takes five guys working together and whoever you're playing next to, if you're sitting in that meeting room going over plays together, uh, talking about football, uh, those guys will figure
2: it out. They're, they're smart players. Speaking of building continuity, a familiar name who helped you guys develop over the course of your tenure with the Giants is back in the building. And I'm talking about your former offensive line coach, Pat Flaherty, who's now an advisor and they have a new offensive line coach in Rob Sale. From your experience working with Flats, what do you think having an experienced coach like that could do for the new offensive line coach as well as for Joe Judge and the rest of the staff? Uh, everything,
3: right? I love Coach Flats. Coach Flats, um, he's a very special coach to me, obviously. He, he was uh, one of my two offensive line coaches in the league. I had Jim McDowell and Coach Flaherty and, you know, Coach Flats and I, we still talk to this day. He came down to watch a bunch of our high school games uh, the last few years whenever he had time. And he, he's a big experience, right, to, to, to the uh, new offensive line coach who came from University of Louisville, I believe, um, breaking down film. If any of, these, any of those guys in the room have any questions, Flats is scenic, coached it, heard about it, done it, um, you know, technique-wise, scheme-wise. Um, I, I know I'm biased, but I, Coach Flats is one of the best offensive line coaches to coach the game, and I'm glad he's back, he's back in New York. It was hard to uh, root for the teams that, when he was coaching in other spots, um, I had to because Slats is my guy, but now I can you know, just go back and cheer for the Giants. <laughs> That's not a bad thing, Richie. I understand. No. Hey, hey, what was your
0: impression of Nick Gates? I mean, you, you had done some tinkering with center. Uh, Nick Gates, who had been a tackle at Nebraska, and then came here and they said, okay, you're going to be an interior guy, and he was a guard, and then he converts to center last year, and I think by some people's imaginations, he
3: was a long shot to win that job, but he won it, and by all stretches, he did pretty well. You know, he did. He, he, he must be pretty smart, right? I don't know Nick at all. Um, he, he must be a smart kid. Just playing centers, um, it's it's not an easy position to, to go and play, right? You've got to step the ball. You've got to step differently. Um, your stance is you know parallel instead of staggered, but... Uh, it looks like he gets after it. He likes to get after it. He plays physical, and uh, he's smart. And, and, you know, if you have those few things, you know, you can play anywhere on the offense line. I think a lot of people get trenched in saying, oh, he's a tackle, he's a guard, he's a center. Listen, if you, if you can play in the NFL, the more you can do, the better, right? And that's, that's kind of, you know, I think Coach Buffman used to joke about it, hey, the more you can do, the better. The more you can do, the better. And um, we never complained. You know, we just wanted to play football. And I'm sure Nick just wants to play football, and if it was playing center, it was his best chance to be on that field. And, you know, that's, that's, that's what he played, and he won the job, and
2: he played well. We're talking with former Giants offensive lineman Rich Soybert here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. And to your point, he's played pretty much all five positions at some point over the course of his career. And versatility is important because, God forbid, there's an injury. At least you have somebody that has some exposure to other positions. Rich, I want to piggyback off of something you brought up earlier when you talked about the year you broke your right leg and ankle in October 2003 and then unfortunately missed all 4 and then you came back and you were sort of moved all around. It's not exactly related to what Nate Soldier's going through because he wasn't hurt, but he did opt out last year. He's a polished veteran, and now he's trying to get back in the thick of things and maybe reclaim his starting job, and it could come on the opposite tackle spot on the right side. I guess what I'm getting at is, Mentally, how challenging was it for you to sit out that year, then come back, and how that may relate to what soldiers got to go through? Um, I was just
3: uh, me myself, per se. Um, it's just a little bit different situation, obviously, but I was just excited to be back, right? Until I until I got rolled into and my leg stepped on again, like it happened. You know, I never really trusted it per se, but I believe like the second practice in pads, you know, I got piled up, and uh, my, you know, I was fine; nothing hurt. I, I was good to go. Um, I was really excited just to get back out there. And I'm sure Sol- Soldier's going to be the same way. Um, you know, missing a year because of the, you know his, his circumstance with COVID and uh, his family. You know, I respect his decision. And I just hope – I hope the best of him. He, he, he's one half of a football player. And I'm sure he's going to go out there compete. You know, you, you never can have enough competition. And by having these guys competing in that room together, this is going to make them better. One of the things that people were curious about, Rich,
0: was if Nate, in fact, was going to come back, a guy who spent a decade in this league, you know, coming off of the opt-out, there were some folks who thought maybe he would retire. How much better is the line, not necessarily whether or not he wins the job, but how much better are they having a guy like that in the room who can provide
3: all kinds of wisdom to a a line that for the most part is, is... Really, rather young. You know, that's, that's one thing I heard about Nate is he's a great teammate, right? So, you know, having him in that, in that locker room, in the meeting room, he brings so much knowledge. He's played a long time. Um, you know, he played for a pretty good football team, kind of New England. Um, he's seen a lot of stuff. And um, those, those are the guys you want to have around. I, I looked at it as like, um, you know, uh, Lomas Brown when I first went to the Giants. Lomas played for many, many years. I learned so much from him. Uh, Bobby Whitfield. When I was, you know, in, in my middle of my career, when, when they brought Bobby in to be the sweet tackle, and uh, Bobby, you know, played a lot of football, and, you know, we just picked his brain about different things, and he, he was a great leader in that locker room for us, and I think that's one thing they could bring to the
2: table. With respect to continuity on the offensive line, Rich, which we were talking about earlier, and how you mentioned, I mean, you guys pretty much knew everything about yourselves on and off the field. The other thing that I don't think is emphasized enough is the chemistry between the O line and the quarterback. And you, of course, had the luxury to play with Eli Manning, who was extremely durable and was a polished vet and pretty much had been exposed and seen just about everything. I'm curious what you think about Daniel Jones, the importance now that he's entering year three, Rich. And he's working with some guys that at least he's lined up with in the previous year and how that alone could perhaps elevate his game before we even talk about the weaponry that they added in free agency. Uh, yeah, yeah,
3: I don't know much about quarterback play, right? I, I, when I'm watching games, I'm watching up front always. You know, think It's a bad habit. But I, I'm excited for Daniel. Um, I always thought Daniel has all the tools necessary to play. He reminded me of Eli when Eli first started off. Um, this is going into his third year, I'm excited to watch him and, and the leaps and bounds. And he's he's got he's got weapons on offense. You know, Barkley's gone back. He's got his receivers, and he's got a lot of offensive linemen right coming back that played last year. So um, he only can get better. Um, and I, I'm excited. I, I I like the way he plays, and um, I'm, I'm hoping he you know proves all the doubters doubt, doubt wrong because playing in New York is not easy. And uh, everybody's going to have opinions, and you know a lot of times those opinions ain't the way you want them, but. Those are the things that should drive you and make and make you want to play better and, and, and push you and, and nag on you and, and just, you know, make you compete more.
0: So much has been made, Rich, about Daniel and, and having to scramble away from the pass pressure because, you know, the, the Giants had so many young offensive linemen last year and sometimes there was a little too much heat on him. But Andrew Thomas at left tackle, despite some early rookie struggles, which every rookie has had a very strong second half of the season. I'd like to know from your perspective as an offensive lineman, what did you see in him that made you feel better
3: about him down the stretch as he then goes into year two? Um, it was his technique, right? I, I just think um, the speed of the game might have got to him a little bit. I know he came from Fayette University playing football, but it's different, right? It, it's, you know, jumping into the NFL, you know, playing left tackle at, from, from the get go or whatnot. Um, it's, 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 hard. I don't care who you are and it takes time to learn. Right. And, um, it took him a little bit of time, but he, you know, I think he improved every week and his technique got better. And he must've worked hard and he kept, you know, fighting and, and, and kept, uh, and kept grinding and you, you can see it on the field. So, um, him going from his first year to his second year, I'm excited to, to see how
2: good he could be. Cause I think he can be one half of a ball player. Rich, with respect to film study off of your last point, I think you could argue, well, it was a bit of the land of the unknown because nobody had much film on him in the NFL in the early stages of his career, and then on the flip side, he, right, had to get a feel for all of the top pass rushers. Now that there's a little bit more out there of what he's capable of doing, and he has additional knowledge of what some of the top pass rushers are capable of doing, what's important for him as he studies film in year two to make sure that that adjustment period continues to go smoothly? Yeah, he's Myself, right, I, I don't um, study yourself
3: and study the best guys at your position in the league. You know, it's not so much about watching your opponents all the time, but it's about you and, and how you do things. And um, you know, we had D linemen when I played that you know, yay. What am I doing wrong? What, what am I doing that that, I, that, I, that is hard for you? Um, what are some of my tendencies? The more questions you can ask to your teammates, um, the, the guys you go get in practice every single day, the better it's going to make you. When I, you know, when I was a rookie and I pulled and, and tried to block straight he threw me like a rag doll. He goes, you're leading too much. It's just like the little things from your teammates that have played a long time will make you better, right? Uh, you know, doing one of those against Justin thought when he came down to the three technique. Uh, Justin, it, you know, why are you doing this to me? And he'd tell me, right? And I'll tell him what, what I saw in him and you would tell me. And, and when you have that, that professional working relationship with the guys you're going against trying to kick the crap out of them practice, you know, you're, 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 you're trying to make each other better. Well, and of course,
0: we know that the Giants' defensive front seven got significantly better last year, and now they drafted Olajari to help out with the pass rush off the edge. Rich, they say iron sharpens iron, right? And I would think that the Giants' pass rush is supposed to be better this year. That, by by what you're talking about, is going to help these guys.
3: It will. You you only get better with the competition you go against every day in practice, Um, you know. There was many, many, many fights over the years in training camp and in practice, and it was all, it was all good in nature because you get sick of going against those same guys day in and day out, and, you know, you know, some days they bring it, and some days you bring it, and some days you both bring it, and was days you both bring it, you know, the crap's going to hit the fan, and, and things are going to happen, but it only makes you better, um, you know, its it, it's part of the game, and the better your O-line is, the better your D-line will be. The better your D-line is, the better your O-line is. It's just the way the, the way
2: cookie crumbles. It's all about playing the trenches, as you certainly can attest to. The other layer of this, what we're talking about, that I would think would help not just the offensive line, but the offense overall is the fact that, Rich, this is year two under Jason Garrett, and Daniel Jones and the offense have had multiple coordinators over the last few years, including Daniel Jones going back to college You worked with a few different offensive coordinators when you were with the Giants. You had Sean Payton. You had John Huffnagel. You had Kevin Gilbride. When you remember back what year two was like when you inherited the same offensive coordinator, how much of a difference, Rich, at least for an offensive lineman was that, compared to perhaps when you would go from one scheme to another in the span of two years? Well, you
3: you should know. You you, you as a player should know the playbook better, right? Um, You know the same offensive coordinator some things might get tweaked but the terminology is all going to stay the same so um it, it was always difficult that first year when you had a new coordinator the terminology you know everything it's football right it stays the same but just the wording might be a little different and, and once you're once you're comfortable with with, with the playbook, you can play better you know i always thought it would take you know two to three years um to get really good at your craft yeah no matter what you do um those years you take and you learn it and and every rep you get, you just you know you put in your memory bank, and every time you go over to meeting rooms, um, you put in your memory bank, and, and after about two three years, you should know everything, right? Like you shouldn't have to be told how to block power because it hasn't changed, and, and how to block you know sixty two protection or 60, 76 protection because those things have, are instilled in you, right? And it's just it's just common knowledge, and going into year two, with the same terminology with with, with Coach Garrett. And you know, pretty much the offense going back intact. It should be a lot better. You know, Rich, I have I have a bit of a philosophical question, and I and maybe maybe
0: I'm reading too much into this, but you know, you were an undrafted rookie free agent. You were given a chance to earn your way onto the team and to earn your way into the starting lineup, and you did it. David Deal was a, was a third day pick. He was given a chance. He earned it. I mean, you you guys didn't have a bunch of first-round draft picks on your line. The Giants, even though Thomas was a first-rounder, Parrott was a third, Lemieux was a fifth, Hernandez was a second, Gates was an undrafted rookie free agent. When the team says, hey, I know you guys aren't number one picks, but we believe in you we want to give you a chance, we want you to grow, we think you guys can do the job. And they didn't draft any offensive linemen this year. Is there any value to that, either emotionally or mentally, to these young kids now, that they're being given the chance to earn something? Uh, I'm sure it is, right? Like, you know, every year the the draft will come around, but...
3: You know, you're going to solve They don't draft somebody in the first two rounds at your position because you know you're going to have a dog fight in your hands. Um, but now going back to, you know, where you're drafted, being a free agent, I never cared, right? I just wanted the opportunity to play, and it didn't matter if I was going to be a first-round pick, which I wasn't, or a free agent, right? I just, when you're playing, you don't say, oh, I'm a first-round pick. I deserve the position. I'm like, dude, people get beat out all the time. You know, I think Antonio Pierce had a thing in his locker with everybody drafted his year, right? And there was only a few guys left, and that was my year, too. so. Um, it doesn't matter how you get to the league; it matters how long you stay, right, and, and how well you play. So, um, not drafting somebody this year at that position, you know, it should give them confidence that yes, hey, you know, the organization, the general manager, the coaches, the owners, you know, they, they trust us. They think they, they think we're good enough. Now they got to go put the work in to make sure you we at the
2: the other thing that was notable with respect to that group that Paul just referenced that the front office has certainly echoed a voice of optimism and confidence in is a number of those guys, at least in the tackle position, rotated in and out. And you talked about your group, you had versatility, you specifically, Rich. I'm just wondering... When you are exposed to playing next to different guys, maybe over the course of a game, so for example, if Andrew Thomas is playing next to a guard for a few snaps and then another guard comes in, or the guard is playing next to a different tackle, how big of an adjustment is that over the course of the game if the Giants decide to continue that in order to continue to give some of these young guys more exposure next season? They must practice it,
3: right? I'm not out there at practice, but obviously they must practice those lineups. And they probably go over to plays and they want to run with those lineups in there. I don't I, I don't um I, I don't know what they do in practice. I couldn't tell you that. But I think after a while it just becomes natural to you, right? No matter what you're doing. So if you're if you're going back and forth, you know, after the first few weeks, you kinda of just you, you get used to it. You get used to both guys and, and both sides. And I always said the, the biggest thing would be probably being in you know, the right handed stance to a left handed stance. I was on the left side, um, maybe until I was over there for a while but going to the right side always just the sands would throw me off more than anything else you know playing next to Dave or cream you know those two guys we, we talked we, we all talked the same way so you know it didn't it didn't matter that much per se but um you know one you got to be a smart player because I could see how people get confused with hey which way the ball going right right or left if you're playing right side or left side but he's a he's a pro he can do it um, if that's what they want to do to get more guys experience, you know, so be it. I, it's, it's, it's their call, and I agree with what they do. I like those guys.
0: Rich, before we let you go, I know you're a Giants for life, and uh, we all appreciate everything you've done for the organization. And I know you're out there coaching high school football. You're out there in the great outdoors when you get a chance. But I also know you have a charity. And, uh, you know, we should tell people a little bit about that before we let you go because I know your community is very
3: important to you. Uh, thanks, Paul. I appreciate this. Um, I started up in 2008, right? We did a, a charity trap shoot back in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, raised money for cardiac research uh, in honor of my grandmother, who received a heart transplant in 1987. Um, from there, we raised over $2 million. Um, we, our goal was to get $1 million for an endowment for cardiac research. We passed that after, like, the fourth year. So now we're raising money for, for whatever the clinic and hospital, that Marshall Clinic they need and the last couple of years it's been for child life specialists and for um the, the cancer the, the child's cancer um clinic back home and uh, we have not had an event for the last two years but this year we actually did virtual games with 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 patients at the clinic which I have and O'Hare and Booth and you know a great Rugamer from the meetup, you know, just great being back home from Wisconsin He's with the Packers not working so they're excited um some local celebrities helped out and it, it was really fun right we had some donations and um I just, those four kids, right, during COVID have been stuck in a hospital with no visitors, and, you know, maybe one or two family members can go in there to visit them, and I just thought, yeah, we can't do an event, but we need to do something to get back, and, um, you know, spending 30 minutes playing a virtual game with somebody, uh, I enjoyed it for P6. I'm, I, I hope the kids enjoyed it. I'm sure they did, and I, I just look forward to keep doing something to help out because that's what we do, right? We, we We all try to help as much
2: as we can. Absolutely. Well said. Rich, just out of curiosity, if people want more information or if they want to assist, is there a website or anything that they could go to to get more info on that? Um, there is. It's themarshallclinic.org, uh, and then you can just go um,
3: backslash Rich Soybert celebrity trap shoot, or you can just Google you know, Rich Soybert and then uh, charity, and I think it'll pop up. Um, Twitter, you know, Instagram, Facebook, those are the best ways
2: to find it. But- Sounds good. Well, he is former Giants offensive lineman Rich Soybert, who is now doing a lot of great work in the community, as well as is the head football coach at Watchung Hills Regional High School in Warren, New Jersey. Played for the Giants from 2001 to 2010, and he helped Big Blue, of course, win Super Bowl 42 over the Patriots. Rich, can't thank you enough. Greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Hope you and yours continue to stay safe and healthy, and we look forward to talking to you down the road. Hope to see you soon, Rich. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. I enjoyed it. I, I, I miss you
3: guys. You guys know that, and I'll be
2: in there soon. Sounds good. Our pleasure having you on the program. So that was former Giants offensive lineman Rich Soybert with us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Some great insight and his perspective on what to expect out of the Giants offensive line this season. And Paul, let's react to what he had to say before we move on to some other items. I thought one of the most interesting takeaways from Rich, I don't think this is necessarily startling, but when I had asked him about what it was like to jump from year one to year two from his experience, and clearly he didn't play a lot as an undrafted rookie, but how the comparison with respect to this year's group, the three rookies that they got all on the field and how valuable that experience will be, regardless of whether it was Matt Peart who played 15% to the snaps or Andrew Thomas was high in the 90s, mm-hmm. at least you know, Paul, that group is bringing to the field this training camp exposure in a regular season game, which you not necessarily could say all the time for young players, which to me is a big positive.
1: No, you're right, Lance. And when we talked about this last year and the rotation was something that was rather new to a bunch of us, we certainly didn't expect to see it. In listening to Joe Judge, I understood why he was doing it. Number one, because there were no dominant guys at the position. You know, the guard spot was kind of in flux. The right tackle spot was a little bit kind of in flux. And so there was no reason just to stay with a, quote, dominant guy. It, it was it was kind of like, well, you know, we can experiment here just a little bit because, you know, we don't have a Hall of Famer playing the spot. So that was one reason I'm sure that he did it. But the other reason was, and I think I can speak for Joe Judge, He truly thinks that these young guys have a lot of potential and that giving them a taste of what was going on in a regulation NFL game would be beneficial to them in the long run. And I think this is what we're now seeing in year two with these guys to know that they've at least experienced some of that real live action stuff at the pro level. And, you know, in Judge's mind, They're going to be all the more better for it. They will be a a step and a half ahead of where they would have been this summer had they not been able
2: to take any regular season snaps as rookies. It reminds me of the old philosophy, which I think you can talk about with respect to most professions. It's one thing to watch somebody do a job, right, and to sit Mm -hmm. next to them, observe, take notes. It's another thing then to actually do it. And I think that's true, Paul, for football players like many other professions where, hey, you can be a sponge. You can absorb, for example, the quarterback. When he's in the room with the established veteran, you're learning a lot when they're breaking down film. You're learning a lot when the quarterback and the QB coach are explaining how the decision-making process goes along throughout the course of that play. But I think most players and most people who have taken on any job will tell you it's a completely different ball game when you actually get thrown into the mix. And I can only imagine what that's like for an offensive lineman when you got <laughs> an elite pass rusher staring at your face who wants to absolutely mow you down, right? A few inches away. So that to me is why, to your point, even if it's a small percentage of snaps for Matt pair to understand what the speed is like on the NFL level for him to then bring that to camp. And if he's got a battle, Nate soldier, however, the competition plays out, he understands as opposed to a rookie, having a baptism by fire philosophy. I think that could go a long way. So when, We say you want players to get experience. Yes, it's nice to say that, and you never want to put a player in a position where they're uncomfortable and not ready because that, to me, can really backfire and stunt the development and growth, most important, the confidence of a player. But when you feel as if they're learning enough in film study and there's no harm in putting them out there for a few snaps, which I think the Giants' logic was— that, to me, can help accelerate what you maybe can get out of these players in year two, which is going to be crucial because this could be a relatively young offensive line. We're not talking about one player. We're talking about three or four guys that don't have a wealth of experience.
1: Well, you know what, Lance? I think one of the things that, that Joe Judge was, was really specific about when, when he discussed these guys last year is that all of them were fundamentally sound, and all of them were good listeners— And when you consider that he has so much faith in them that, hey, they've only need to go through a few things, uh, you know, a handful of times to clean it up. I think he believes that these are the kinds of young players that won't make the repetitive mistakes that maybe some other players would, because these guys are very football astute, if you will, and they take direction really well. And I think that's also kind of part of what he had to find out by putting them in limited action last season. Because he would always say to us, these guys are not making the same mistake twice. That, to me, was a big deal. Because he now knows, okay, check that box, check this box, and check the other box. These guys have already gone through those limited growing pains with certain things that we know young players are going to do as they trip all over themselves and fall on their faces. No. These guys already have those boxes checked. Now we can move on to they're novices. They're not beginners anymore. And I think maybe part of this process was Judge needed to find that out and I think he did, based on everything he told us.
2: Yeah, and you find that out as I'll piggyback off of my previous statement by actually getting them out there in a the game right. as opposed to just limiting them to practice reps, because sometimes you see progress that way, but you get a good read on what your teammates do every single day in practice. When you're thrown up against a player who you're not going up against all the time, and to your point, you're making those adjustments and corrections throughout a game, that to me is the true sign of progress. So and when you add forget- all of those factors up, that certainly Can't be overlooked.
1: You know, we talk about this all the time too. Preseason games are nice, but they're not the real deal.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. So, no, one hundred percent. There is a distinct difference in terms of the speed, the intensity, and also the level of competition that you're going up against. No disrespect to the guys that get in Mm -hmm. in the fourth quarter in a preseason game, but most of those players, let's be realistic, do not make the fifty-three man roster. So, if you really want to know about a young player who you think could be a starter. You want to see them go up against starting caliber talent. And that's what I think the Giants learned, regardless of whether it was a big sample size or a small sample size. So that is the land of the land in terms of the offensive line. And we thank Rich Soybert for weighing in and providing his professional experience and perspective with respect to the outlook of this year's group. Limited Giants season tickets are on sale now for the 2021 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seats starting at just $100. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also, don't miss out on your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2021. As a Giants suite partner, limited full season locations are available or you could place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925 or you could visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. And lastly, everyone, let's get vaccinated. Go to covid19.nj.gov slash vaccine to register. And that brings us to some developments in terms of the structure for fans in the upcoming season as... We laid out on Tuesday's program, Governor Murphy in New Jersey announced that MetLife Stadium can operate at full capacity for the 2021 season. The Giants and the Jets, they issued a joint statement. So that is a sign that we are certainly inching closer to normalcy. On top of that news, then the NFL, Paul, on Tuesday informed clubs of two important developments. The first Mm -hmm. item is that teams are going to be permitted toast fans at training camp this summer. That's, of course, subject to state and local guidelines. So it could obviously fluctuate from team to team. But for the most part, NFL teams anticipate they will have some semblance of fans at some of their training camp practices. So that is number one. Number two, in addition to the Giants and the Jets, as well as a number of other teams, the tally right now is that there's about 28 stadiums that already have approval that they believe they will be able to have full capacity. They're feeling good, the league indicated, about the Colts and the Broncos, and that means that that really only leaves two more teams left. So when you put the facts together, you connect the dots, it looks like we're probably going to have 32 teams with full capacity of fans at their stadiums next season, and that's going to resemble what we saw, obviously, going back to 2019 compared to what teams had to experience last season.
1: Well, I think, Lance, the only thing we can add to that is that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Sure. I mean, it makes us all feel really good and really hopeful and really optimistic that everybody's going to be able to go to games who wants to go to these games. I think, you know, for me, I'm still a bit curious as to what the protocols will be because, as you said, state and local guidelines will ultimately govern the rules and regulations that people are going to have to follow before they go into those stadiums whether or not they have to have proof of vaccination, uh, whether or not they have to wear masks or don't. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm still a bit curious as to how those things will shake out. But the fact that they're expecting to be able to uh, have a vehicle to allow full stadiums during the course of the season is a really, really cool thing. And I think all of us are incredibly happy about that. I I do think the, the, the beginning of what you mentioned, though, in terms of the whole training camp thing um, that's rather curious to me and i think you and i over the years have, have always discussed uh, you know how long is training camp and you know when's that first preseason game going to be and it's it's kind of mixed how over the years different teams have had different dates to open their training camp because they had different preseason dates uh, but I think you can explain a little bit more, uh, as this new guideline had just come out, that they're going to be uniform this year. And I found that to be even, I don't know, more intriguing. Is that the the way to phrase this? Because uh, the league has finally decided to be standardized with this. And that's new to me. I, I, I just, I always wondered why. But they were never going to answer. And now they've decided to do it.
2: Yeah, it's always been staggered over the course of a week. You have some teams report Monday, they start Tuesday, and then we go down the laundry list of days. And last season, they had everybody pretty much start simultaneously, and part of that was because they had no off-season workouts. So they wanted to maximize the calendar before the start of the regular season, knowing also that there wouldn't be preseason games. What we know, and this is according to, by the way, this is not a source. This comes straight from Peter O'Reilly, the NFL Executive VP of Club Business and League Events. So he spoke to the media the other day. Training camps are going to open July 27th for 29 of the 32 teams. Then the Cowboys, Steelers, and Tampa Bay Buccaneers will be permitted to open earlier because they're participating in the Hall of Fame preseason game. The Hall of Fame game is between the Cowboys and the Steelers. And then the Cowboys play the Bucs in the regular season opener on that Thursday, September 9th, which always happens. You always give those teams an additional few days to start camp. So that's not necessarily a surprise, but... Everybody else, hey, July 27th, you're reporting, and then you could get straight to practice. And I think the point of that is competitive balance and maximizing the lost time from OTAs and teams that are canceling mandatory minicamps. So they're trying to balance things out, and I wouldn't be surprised if maybe this is the plan moving forward, especially if it's effective.
1: I just wonder why they didn't decide on doing something like this years ago because, as you know, Lance, they finally put in that rule where you could open up your training camp a maximum of 15 days before your first preseason game. That rule went into effect some years ago, and that was to supposedly set some type of standard. But as you know, teams would often play their first preseason game on different days, People didn't play them all on the first Saturday of of, uh, or the second Saturday of August. Sometimes there would be Friday games. Some teams would play Saturday. There were even some Sunday preseason games. And so it was like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) You're saying there's a a standard that you're putting in place 15 days before your first preseason game, but that's staggering everybody's training camp opener does that really make sense because really preseason games are nothing more than ramped up days during the middle of training camp really when you get down to it it's it's just part of training camp so i always thought that it should be standard and now they've finally decided to
2: do it so uh hey good for them and maybe they will do the same thing moving forward Plus, remember, when you have a preseason game, you have to account for travel. You have to account for you're probably not going to practice the following day. So every team has the ability to tweak the schedule to cater to their respective team. That's more of a reason why as long as everybody starts at the same time, you're going to build in off days anyway as it suits your team. So it's not as if you're giving one team an extra 10 days of practice because even if everybody starts at the same time, when it all – adds up some teams are going to say hey we spread out our off days other teams are going to choose it based on when they have their preseason game so to me it all balances out i guess is what i'm getting at in the end the other thing that i wanted to go ahead also let's remember too the the
1: cba requires teams to have certain days off and only certain numbers of padded practices and certain numbers of days to practice consecutively I mean, this is all governed by the CBA. So while there's a, a little bit of jimmying that you can do within your travel plans, the truth of the matter is the training camps are, are really regulated. So, you know, it just made sense to finally get everybody in unison.
2: Yeah. The only thing that I would add is, I guess, what I was angling towards was if a coach feels, hey, I feel my team is worn down or maybe I don't want to overwork them, he has the right to then cancel a practice or two, right? I mean, you're not required by the CBA to have X amount of practices, and I'll tell you this, the players are (laughs) certainly not going to (laughs) complain if you give them an extra day off, right?
1: (laughs) No, I don't think so.
2: Yeah, so they have the flexibility to uh, tweak that. The other thing that I wanted to add based on what we were talking about earlier because you brought up the point about it's going to be very interesting to see how training camp is structured from at least the fans' perspective. This was an interesting quote that I want to read from – Peter O'Reilly, the NFL's executive VP of club business and league events, quote, it won't likely look exactly the same as a normal training camp as far as proximity to players and autographs and some of the other things, end quote. So the reason why I wanted to read that quote word for word, and remember, we're not speaking for the Giants because the Giants have yet to officially announce anything pertaining to accommodating fans. So I want to emphasize that for those of you who are listening and planning and very hopeful. I think there's optimism, but as far as it being structured, Paul, like it's normally been at the Giants facility, I think fans have to realize you may have access to a practice or two, depending on what the Giants specifically choose to do. But as far as being close, where you're seated, interacting with players, let's not go that far to expect it to be identical to what happened pre-pandemic.
1: No, I understand that. I mean, look, it's been a great thing that the Giants have done over the last several years where they've had autographs uh, for the children with specific units on certain days. That's, that's been a tremendous success, and I know the kids have totally enjoyed that. I don't necessarily know if we're going to see that because of, of protocols that will still have to be in place. Uh, we know the Giants have brought back their alumni to sign autographs and take pictures with all of the fans outside the fence. Uh, I don't know if we're going to see that again. You know, protocols are still going to have to be determined. So we don't want to get people's hopes up like all of the things are going to be restored. I, I think it's very fair of you to mention that, you know, okay, training camp may be open, but there are going to be some tweaks they just have to cut some corners because things are not, you know, 100% open yet. That's just not the case. However, I would say this, Lance. Again, not knowing how the bleacher situation may be set up, and again, there could be rules for that too, the way the bleachers are set up at the Meadowlands, where the Giants practice on, on, on the Quest fields outside, they are rather back yeah. from the players. They're outside the fence, which, as you know, You know, there's some room there along the sidelines before you get to the fencing area. And then once the fencing area is there, there's a little bit of of room uh, until you get to the actual bleachers themselves. So I suspect, again, I don't know this, but I suspect there's probably enough distance between the players and the coaches and the guys on the field uh, that, you know, the fans aren't that that close where they're going to run into a protocol problem. At least I wouldn't think so. But I don't want to speak for anybody because I just don't know exactly what the state's going to say. And then uh, I don't know how the Giants feel or the sports authority feels. Sure. So so they may have other concerns that force them to implement new rules that maybe we don't even know about. So I I hesitate to, to really talk much about it. But I guess for those of you who have been out there at training camp before, it is certainly fair based on what Lance has told you, not to expect
2: things to be exactly as they were. Well, and the other thing that also is, I think, important to note is it's May 26th, okay? We are two months away from training camp. A lot can happen between the next two months, both positive and both perhaps cautiously optimistic. So you also need to take that into consideration. Remember, this is a very fluid situation. I think Giants fans, all football fans understand that. Announcements that are made, Paul, eight weeks ago are different than where we are now. And Mm -hmm. then it's going to be very different in terms of what we're looking at in late July. But this is at least what the NFL has indicated based on some of their most recent statements, based on what the Giants and the Jets announced in terms of what they expect at MetLife Stadium. And certainly it's fair to characterize all of that as a positive development as we move closer to the start of the 2021 season. Lance Metal Paul DeTino, with you here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. This is Wednesday's edition. A reminder, we are pre-recording all of our shows this week, so we are unable to take phone calls. But if you have questions or comments, feel free to send them in using hashtag GiantsChat on Twitter, because we want to try to answer any questions you may have pertaining to the team. And that brings us to some mailbag questions that have been posted on Giants.com. And Paul and I were looking through a few of them, and we figured we'd address some of them that really go across the board on the roster. And I want to start with this question from Marty in New Jersey, Paul. He asks, with a few tight ends being brought in, Who might end up being the odd man out if all of them are fully healthy at the start of the season? Well, I think the first thing you have to figure
1: out is how do you feel about the number of tight ends that they'll keep on the roster? Is it going to be three? Is it going to be four? I sincerely don't think it's going to be five.
2: (laughs) No, I'm with you there.
1: (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, I, I I think I told John the other day, somebody had called up and and asked about this, and I think I told him the other day, and I'm going to stick to it. I think the Giants keep three tight ends. And for me, that means Rudolph, Ingram, and Smith would be the guys to stick. Now, you know, could they keep four? I think the only way they keep four is if they have an injury to the top three and they feel as though the fourth guy's insurance Or if one of the other positions that we expect to be loaded, and I'm talking about the wide receiving core, I'm talking about the secondary particularly, and potentially the linebacking core with all those outside edge rushers, uh, they will probably decide they'd like to keep an extra one of those guys before keeping an extra tight end. So I don't think tight end number four is fighting his own position for a roster spot. I think he's fighting somebody else at a
2: different position. A numbers game. Yeah, because you can't keep everybody, and it depends on what shape the roster is in when you're finalizing your 53. If everybody's fully healthy, okay, it's a tougher decision, but that's an ideal circumstance. Sometimes out of necessity, maybe you have some injuries in the defensive backfield, and you say to yourself, hey, we got to keep an additional safety or corner. Okay, well, where are you going to take from in order to make room for that? To your point, Sometimes you have to take it away from the tight end position, just to give our audience an idea. As it stands right now, remember we are at the point where everybody could have a 90 man roster, so this doesn't hold a lot of weight. But just to give you the layout of the land, they've got seven tight ends on the roster right now. They have the group that mainly played last year in terms of Evan Ingram, Caden Smith, and Levine Toilolo. They added Kyle Rudolph. You have Rice and John. Remember the six seven guy from Canada who is certainly intriguing. And then they added Nakia Griffin-Stewart and Cole Hickitini. Hickitini, second year of the league out of Louisville. Griffin-Stewart, first year out of Pittsburgh. Just to give you an idea in terms of some of the guys that don't get a lot of name and notoriety. So the last three I named, you know it's going to be an uphill battle because you've got some established tight ends atop the depth chart. We know Evan is entering a critical year, final year of his rookie deal. Kyle Rudolph was part of the big splash at free agency. Caden Smith has been a really nice player who they claimed off of waivers, remember, from San Francisco. And Levine Toilolo, a veteran. Now, you can make the argument, Paul, based on how Jason Garrett utilized tight ends. And I'm going back to the games, remember, where Daniel Jones didn't play, and they went tight end heavy. For example, the Seattle game where he was utilizing three tight ends. Mm -hmm. If Garrett feels, hey, for insurance... That's where we want to go. You could justify keeping four. The other question, though, I think is important related to this, what's the practice squad structure? What's the rules? Because if they feel one of these established veterans, like a Levine Toilolo, I'm just going to throw him out there, okay? Let's say he's that borderline fourth guy, which is not crazy to say. Do you feel that you can pass him through waivers and then keep him on your practice squad? If the answer is yes— then that, to me, makes it more logical to say, hey, we're just going to start off with three guys.
1: Well, I'm going to throw two other nuggets into this equation for you. First of all, Kelvin Benjamin is trying out... Well, there's another name. name. Yeah,
2: that's fair.
1: So, in effect, he's the eighth guy in that room. I don't think he's going to compete at wide receiver, Lance. I just don't see it. I, I don't see enough speed and athleticism at this point in his career where he's going to be able to crack even the top six at wide receiver and probably not even the top eight you know, as they go through the depth chart during training camp. So I think his only chance to make this team would be as a tight end. So let's say there are eight tight ends vying for spots. The other thing that I believe, and one of the reasons why I would keep Caden Smith over Toy Lolo on the act of 53, is if during the course of the game or even a particular week, you wanted that extra blocking tight end, I would just use Nate Solder as that guy. I would go jumbo package and take one of my offensive linemen and I'm going to assume that Matt Parrott is going to win the right tackle job. But if he doesn't, how about the loser of the Parrott-soldered competition becomes the emergency third blocking tight end, in effect, the fourth tight end on your roster,
2: if necessary? I think that makes a lot of sense. Plus, remember, Kyle Rudolph is a really good blocker, who they he added, is. because that's mainly what his job was over the last few seasons in Minnesota. He even spoke about that when he arrived on the scene, that, hey, the reason why my receiving numbers weren't that high was mainly because they asked me to block for Dalvin Cook, <laughs> and that's exactly mm-hmm. what I did. They kept three tight ends, just to give you an idea, on the original 53-man roster last year. It was Evan Ingram, Caden Smith, Levine Toilolo. So you know Rudolph's making the team, okay? So that means that it's a Caden smith Levine toylolo decision unless somebody absolutely wows you during camp. So that's why I honed in on those two. The other thing that I want to add to your point about Kelvin Benjamin, who I still look at as a tweener, mainly because, remember, he's converting positions. He hasn't played tight end. So we know of him as a wide receiver in the NFL. So I still look at him as a tweener, and let's see what he could do at tight end. But you're right. I think if he's going to make the roster, most likely it would be a tight end, much more so than wide receiver given the depth But I look at him as if he's still working on getting comfortable at tight end. He, to me, is an ideal practice squad player, Paul. Because just think about this. He hasn't been in the NFL since 18. I think you would be okay having him pass through waivers and still getting back to your practice squads as it stands right now. Again, assuming he doesn't unbelievably wow you during preseason to put good film on tape for other teams. And then the benefit of a guy like Benjamin – is what we've talked about with other players. If you have somebody on your practice squad who could be a wide receiver and tight end, that's killing two birds with one stone, for the lack of a better phrase, so that if you need to call somebody up because of an injury to that wide receiver tight end position, you maximize having a guy that could contribute in both areas on your 53. Well, if nothing else,
1: remember, we talk about this all the time, the practice squad players have many purposes. And if nothing else... Kelvin Benjamin is a skyscraper and a wide body and a veteran who can certainly give you a variety of looks during the course of the week at practice. He can be a very valuable tool to help your starters
2: go against as he mimics guys on other teams. 100%. Remember, you can't dress everybody number one on game day. And then the guys that don't contribute a lot on game day, their value, even if they're on the 53 man roster, if we have the practice squad, is to prepare the rest of the starters to anticipate what they're going to see on game day. And that incorporates the practice squad players as well as guys on the back end of the depth chart. So they know, hey, the way that I make a name for myself in front of the coaching staff is let me be the best possible scout player imaginable so that they know my preparation is at the standard that they want to prepare the starters and that if the starters get hurt, they know based on my work ethic that I could perhaps contribute as a member of the 53-man roster. So that is something worth monitoring. But a very good question, and we certainly appreciate Marty in New Jersey sending that in because it gives you some food for thought. And here's another thing. This is not a conversation that we've had more often than not in recent years, which I think speaks volumes of the depth across the board on this roster. Speaking Mm -hmm. of depth, Paul, that brings me to another interesting question, which relates to the practice squad. This comes from Ian in Pennsylvania. Do you think rookie Ellerson Smith should start out on the practice squad? That's part one. There, he can work on his strength and weight conditioning, develop as a pass rusher. Then, the other part of the equation, and if Saquon Barkley's not ready by the start of the season, would Devontae Booker be able to be the number one back and Kadarius Toney as part of the mix?
1: Well, you know what, Lance? I think in both of these cases, the word that you really want to focus on is competition. If either of these newcomers shows that through competition, they deserve— to be one of the primary reserves who could step up and have a significant role on this team, then they they should do it. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, to me, there's nothing wrong with making Ellison Smith a spot player or even a redshirt pro. Honestly, fourth-round pick coming up from, you know, the FCS level, this is a big deal for him. Now, if he gets out there at training camp and in the preseason – and he's setting the world on fire well by all means give him a jersey on game day and set the guy loose but if if he's not there's nothing wrong with redshirting him for a season and giving him all the seasoning in the world because the giants do apparently have numbers in front of him at the edge po- at the edge spot which they can get production out of so that's fine as far as the running back situation i mean my goodness You know, they added Clement, they added Armstead. Obviously, Booker came before those other guys did during the offseason, but let them fight it out. You know, I think Booker, to me, is a terrific third-down option. I've said that before, and I don't necessarily know if I consider him a three-down replacement if Barkley is unable to give the Giants what they need. Now Dave Gettleman feels otherwise. He has said he thinks that Booker is a complete three-down back. Maybe he is. Maybe, maybe I've got that entirely wrong. And I trust Dave Gettleman a lot more than I trust me. Trust me. <laughs> if I can use a double a double yes. trust on this whole thing. Uh, so yeah, I mean, sure. Could Booker wind up being that guy? Yeah. But don't you think that Corey Clement and Raquel Armstead are probably going to have something to say about that?
2: 100%. And we actually had a detailed conversation. I think it was last week on the running back position, Paul, because we were talking about when they added Armstead off of waivers. And if the Giants don't feel Saquon Barkley is ready, and if you want to go down that hypothetical road, which is what the questioner did, I don't think they're going to look at one back alone carrying the load I think it would be a very similar approach to how Jason Garrett handled things last season when Barkley got hurt which is you saw Wayne Goldman you saw Alfred Morris and you saw a little bit of Deion Lewis now that's not to say to
1: be a primary guy Lance correct
2: if it's a three-headed monster there does have to be a primary guy but Booker can be the primary guy maybe for example if you're looking at the primary guy okay and you're saying definition of a primary guy I want to get 13 to 15 carries out of Devontae Booker? My answer would be yes. You could give him 13 to 15 carries. I don't think that's asking for an overwhelming amount from him. I'm actually bringing up his game log just to get an idea of what other teams have asked Devontae Booker to do. So if you go back to 2016, right out of the gates, okay, when he was a rookie, he had a stretch of six straight games when he had at least 10 carries. And he had 224 carry games. He had a 17-carry game, an 18-carry game, and a 19-carry game. Okay, I get it. That was his rookie year. Since then, I'm not going to lie. I'm looking at the numbers. He just hasn't had a lot of workload. He had two games last season, though, where he had 16 carries. I mean, keep in mind, he was backing up a major running back with the (laughs) Raiders and Jacobs, okay? And the Raiders used a relatively high pick on that guy. They're not going to necessarily sit him just because they could give opportunities to Booker. So the environment is important to take into consideration, but I guess what I'm getting at is if there's a stretch of games where Barkley can't play or he's not ready to go, I think you could give Booker 15 carries and then sprinkle in Clement or Armstead or whoever else makes the roster. Well, I will tell you this. Otis
1: Anderson, uh, Super Bowl twenty-five MVP, who was on our Big Blue Kickoff Live show yesterday, expressed quite a bit of confidence in Booker. Uh, He has watched him. He said he really enjoyed him coming out of school and has seen him play in the pros. And he has an awful lot of faith that Booker could be that primary guy. Now, you know what? (laughs) Again, let the competition decide... Who gets more snaps? If that, in fact, turns out to be the case, I think we would all like to see Barkley be the primary guy coming off of the knee surgery.
2: And I don't think anybody's going to dispute that. And (laughs) assuming Barkley's healthy, okay, Barkley, we know, is more than capable of having a workload between being a runner and a receiver. Mm -hmm. We're just laying out in the event that Barkley gets banged up and he has to miss some time, which unfortunately has happened over the last two seasons. There's nothing wrong, and I'm sure, listen, any good coaching staff is going to, in their mind, say, okay, when we construct our 53-man roster, in the event we lose player A, who could then step in, and how would we divvy that up? And I think we got a good glimpse of that. I get it. There's different personnel, Paul. But I think you get a read on Jason Garrett and Joe Judge, their logic and their thinking. I don't think they look at if Barkley was out of the equation that somebody's got to be a savior. And once again, I should mention Devontae Freeman was in the mix too last season too. And sure, I failed to mention time. him. Correct. He got then hurt, but that was another guy. But even when they made the move to bring in Freeman, they didn't all of a sudden look at Freeman as okay. Freeman Saquon and Freeman's going to get the same touches and the same workload. They still said, Hey, we're going to lead on Gallman, We're going to lean on Alfred Morris. So, I don't see how things would drastically change in the event that Barkley misses some time. And I'm perfectly fine with that because, once again, Paul, I think it goes back to when you throw around the term primary, what's your definition of primary? I'm not just posing it to you. I'm posing it to anybody. If you want to have the conversation about a primary back, primary could be interpreted in many different ways. So I think it depends on the eye of the beholder. What does the coaching staff look at as a primary ball carrier? I'd say your primary back... In a situation where you
1: have a committee in the backfield, not when you have a superstar like a Barkley or a McCaffrey, because that primary back is going to be in there probably for upwards of 95% of the snaps on game day. But when you have a committee, I think the primary back is probably going to be on the field for two-thirds of the snaps on game day.
2: Okay. So then my estimate of 15 carries, is that fair then? for what you would want out of Probably. a primary ball carrier? I, I would say so. And, and certainly, based on the numbers that these guys
1: have on their resumes, the three fellows we're talking about, Booker certainly would have a foot ahead of those other guys going into training camp. Now, again, he's going to have to outperform them to to gain those snaps. You're not just going to give them to him by default. You want those guys to fight it out. But I think I think you're right. Booker at least has shown... Uh, flashes of being able
2: to handle that type of workload. One other thing that I wanted to piggyback off of from the question that Ian in Pennsylvania posed, the first part, because you were talking about Ellerson Smith, if they wanted to take him along slowly, develop him. But as far as the question about starting out on the practice squad, Paul, in my mind, that I know he hasn't had an NFL preseason game, I just don't see a team saying, a guy that we drafted in the fourth round, that we're willing to put him through waivers, and we're confident that he's going to pass through. (laughs) I I should red flag
1: myself there, because when I talk about him having a redshirt season, I'm talking about him making the 53 and then not necessarily getting it. Yeah, you're talking about the workload,
2: essentially, is what you're focusing on. Right, right,
1: right. He... it, it, look, it's fine if he turns out to be the kind of guy who they really, really love, and I'm sure they do because they did spend a draft pick on him, they may just say to him Sunday in and Sunday out, I'm sorry, you're not on the 53 today. You know, you're you're not getting a jersey today. And if he has to redshirt the entire season on the active roster and practice every week but doesn't get to play an active snap, that's okay because he's a fourth-round pick. Now. If he was a third-round pick, I'll be honest with you, Lance, I'd feel differently because I think your top three picks have to give you some type of immediate return, at least as a rotational player. Once you get to the fourth round, I do believe it's okay if you want to be a little bit more of a developmental player, specifically if your depth chart has enough depth in front of him. Then what's what's the crime? As you love to say all the time, and I'm going to quote you now. Wow! The draft is not just
2: for this year. There you go. Let's see. You're starting to buy in. This music to my ears. Well, we should just end the show right here. I don't know there if I want to go. add anything
1: to that. But we agree more than a lot of people think. We really do.
2: Well, no, I think we're definitely on the same page here. There's no doubt about it. I view Ellerson Smith as a developmental player. Okay, I think that he has upside, he has length, he has potential. Now the Giants need to add the polish. And they have the benefit of having a lot of options at that position, as you pointed out. But I will say this, and this is related to what we were talking about with how they viewed the running backs last season when Saquon got hurt. Based on some opportunities, Paul, that the Carter Coughlins and the Cam Browns got last season, I think the Giants will find opportunities for Ellerson Smith. And... Whether or not guys like Lorenzo Carter, O'Shane Zimenez are fully healthy or not, I think they're going to find opportunities to get Ellison on the field, just like they did with these young offensive linemen. How much, I think that depends on situations, opponents, game flows. But if you got seventh-round picks on the field last year, I don't see why the Giants are going to say, hey, we're not going to give Ellison Smith an opportunity to show some flashes. Well, but- just remember, though,
1: Lance, before you go any further with that, the mathematics were a lot different. You know, Carter was was not available because of injury. Zimenez was not available because of injury. Uh, Odenabo had not been brought in from the Minnesota Vikings. Anderson had not been brought in from the Redskins. The Giants have a lot more people clogging up that pipeline
2: on the edge spot. They do. But I think it's fair to take away from last season, even when you did have full health, for example, on the offensive line. Okay, and I understand it's a different position, Paul, but you didn't necessarily have to play Matt Parrott at all, right? Cam Fleming was fully healthy. Cam Fleming could have had every single snap at right tackle last season. There was no reason to take right. him off the field necessarily. Yeah, except except for two things.
1: Number one is that, you know, Fleming was not such a dominant player that you would cringe at removing him for a, for a snap. Um, I'm not saying that these other guys on defense for the Giants are, but they certainly have a lot more hope in terms of upside for a guy like Carter or Zimenez than Fleming, who you already know what he is going into the season. The guy's been around and played a ton of games and started a ton of games. You know there's no more upside to him. He is what he is. And I think the other thing that you have to remember here is that that's just one guy who was in front of Matt Parrott. At the moment, the edge rusher room has layers of guys in front of a new rookie coming in for the first time. That's a big difference now. He's got to jump two, three, four guys if he's going to get on the field.
2: Special teams to start out and then a rotational pass rusher. I think that's a fair expectation for Ellison a And that's a really
1: great point because one thing we do know is that Joe Judge just loves his special teams guys. And what if Ellison Smith goes out there and absolutely blows it up on special teams? Then you know what? He's getting a jersey
2: on Sunday. (laughs) There's no (laughs) doubt about it. Well, because that's usually the tiebreaker. If a guy can contribute on special teams, hey, you get the jersey. The guy that's not going to contribute, he's the spectator. I don't think there's any doubt about that. One last thing before we put a bow on this conversation, just going back to the whole idea of can you store guys on the practice squad, Remember, if there's preseason games this year, which we expect three total for each team, more film out there for young guys compared to last year. It was a little bit easier to store players in 2020 because teams didn't have film to go by. Number two, you have to ask yourself, what does the practice squad look like? Is there 10 guys, 12 guys, 16 guys? You may not have as many spots to toy with. That's another factor that you have to weigh. And also, the practice squad is not storage, Paul. Okay, this is important to note. It's a placeholder to help guys develop and prepare the 53-man roster. But teams are looking across the league to improve their own 53. And if they feel there's an attractive guy and they have an injury, they're going to pluck that guy off your roster, and then all of a sudden, you don't have the opportunity and the luxury to develop them. So you can't look at that as, well, we're just going to store the guy and keep him away from the rest of the league. Every pro personnel department is doing their homework just like the New York Giants.
1: There's no doubt about that, Lance. And, you know, the fact that we don't have those practice squad rules today, uh, you know, in late May is not a big deal. But you can be sure that at some point before those camps open in July – Uh, the coaches are going to demand answers. So will the personnel departments, and so will the GMs. Because they need to understand the lens that they're looking through as they try to configure their rosters. Yeah,
2: they're absolutely going to have to have some confirmation before training camp starts. I'd be surprised if we don't have some type of announcement on what they're going to do with respect to the practice squad. Because you want to know that going into how you evaluate the players. Well, we certainly appreciate the questions submitted through the mailbag on Giants.com. But remember, you could also send more into hashtag Chat, as we'll be more than happy to answer them the remainder of this week as well as moving forward on future program. So that is going to wrap things up for Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Thanks again to former Giants offensive lineman Rich Soybert for joining us early in the program, providing his perspective on this year's offensive line group. Today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live is part of the Giants Podcast Network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcasts. We will have a new episode coming your way on Thursday, so stay tuned for that. Paul, always a pleasure going back and forth. Enjoy the rest of the week. We'll speak to you next week. Absolutely, Lance. Looking forward to it. And that is going to do it again for us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest. For Paul Datino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. We'll speak to you on Thursday. Have a good one.